Woohoo! All right. As Tom Schrader used to say at the beginning of every uh, priority living study, let's do it. So we're going to do it. Um, I should probably put on some glasses. So if you'll recall from chapter 3, I've got a little diversion tonight. I want to tell a little story and then we'll get into chapter 4. But um, uh, if you'll recall from chapter 3, which we finished last week, Paul makes the point that one person plants, another person waters, but God causes the growth. He's the one that's in charge of results. And Paul's very specific and particular about this whole process, that we're called to obedience and God is the one who uh, causes or allows things to happen. Um, I was uh, in some conversations this week and I was reminded of, I think, one of my favorite God stories that really shows this idea of planting, uh, watering, and then uh, growing and how it takes all these different people to be able to do it. And this story has a lot to do with where you're sitting right now. It has to do with this um, property. And it, it'll feel like a long and meandering story. And it's possible that um, a couple of you may have heard this story before. Uh, Rachel, do you know what I'm talking about? Were you around for this? About how we obtained the property? Yeah. So this might be repetitious for you. So you can get on your phone and, and play hearts or something while I tell the story. But... Uh, the rest of you, I think, would be interested in this story. So uh, let me start by saying this property currently, uh, 3.6 acres, if it were just scraped, just the raw land, is now uh, valued at about $12 million. So that will just give you some, uh, uh, some scale, okay? Um, so some of you know that years ago I was in, uh, for 17 years, I was in the marketplace doing... Uh, retail, restaurant management, and a little bit of real estate. And early, early on in my career, after I, um, I was trying to go to college and work part-time at Christown Mall. Anybody ever heard of that mall? Uh, you know, back when it was named appropriately Christown Mall, not the Spectrum. And uh, it was the highest sales per square foot mall in Arizona. And I uh, tried a year at NAU and I'd come back to Phoenix and I was going to ASU part-time and I was working at Christown Mall uh, part-time at a place called Baker's Shoe Store. Anybody ever heard of Baker's Shoes? Okay, they were part of something called Edison Brothers Stores, which had 5,000 retail stores across the nation. Uh, they were primarily a shoe company, but they had uh, uh, ready-to-wear as well. So it was Baker's, Chandler Shoes, Wild Pair Shoes. Anybody remember Wild Pair? If you're old enough to remember the Wild Pair? Uh, in California, it was called Leeds. Baker's was called Leeds. Uh, and then they had a, a whole apparel division that was 579 stores, Fashion Conspiracy, um, uh, Oak Tree, Jeans West, and then they had some hardware chain. Anybody remember any of those stores? Okay. So there was a Baker's shoe store in Christown. It was the highest volume Baker's shoe store in the southwestern United States out of literally hundreds of stores. And they worked on commission, and I wanted to work there part-time because I felt like I could make a lot of money. And it's true. I made a lot of money selling shoes there on commission. And I fell in love with the retail business so much that I dropped out of school and made that my career. I eventually became a full-time salesperson there. There was a staff of 
20 people in that tiny little shoe store. It was, some of you might, one, of you, one or two of you might remember, it was across from Farrell's. If you remember, remember Farrell's? It was across from Farrell's uh, in Christown, and the janitor's closet was right in front of us. That janitor's closet was this fantastic, stinky, awful little bar that was underneath the mall. You walked downstairs to go into this bar, and it was dark and dank and everything, and anyway, it was a lot of fun. So, um, so then I, I did really well, and, and then I went to the company, and I said, listen, I'll move anywhere to get promoted because they were a promotion from within company. And so they did that, they moved me anywhere. That's when I moved to Abilene, Texas. They had a store in Abilene, Texas that they wanted me to take. So I moved to Abilene, Texas. I was there just under a year, did really, really well in Abilene. I said, I'm, you know, I'll move anywhere, I'll tell you. And then when they came back and they said, when you say you'll move anywhere, we wanna make sure that you mean it. Would you move to New York City, Miami, or Chicago? And I said, yes, I'll move anywhere. Uh, and apparently those were the scariest cities that they had stores in and that's why they wanted, I know, it's weird. That's why they wanted to ask me that. So like two weeks later they came back and said, we have a store in the Chicago area for you. And so anybody here familiar with Chicago, been from Chicago, what, okay. So my first store in Chicago was the Chandler's in Oak Brook Center Mall. Now Oak Brook Center Mall is not the scariest place in the world. In, fa in fact, Oak Brook, uh, uh, Illinois is the highest income per capita zip code in the United States, at least at the time, which was 1980. So it was like, well, I don't know what you're so worried about. This is pretty cushy job. Anyway, then they moved me to North Riverside Park. That was much rougher. And then from there, uh, they moved me down to uh, State Street to run the Chandlers on State Street, which was at State in Washington, right across the street from Marshall Field's flagship store. And this is why I love Chicago. I was there for five years. I had season tickets to the Chicago Blackhawks. Now you're start, a lot of pieces are starting to fall into place. So while I was there, I met a guy named Rick Carey. And Rick was married to Kathy. Rick was 6'4". Now in 1980, 81, 82, 83, 84, six foot four inches tall, that was tall. He was always the tallest person in the room. He was always the tallest person on the street. Now 6'4 is nothing. I'm short now, but I, you know, 6'4 was a big deal. And he had a thing about his height. He used to walk up to people and go, do you know how tall I am? He just asked strangers that. He thought it was funny to do. Anyway, he's a quirky guy, but we became really good friends because we were in North Riverside Park together. I had the Chandler store. He had the Baker store working for the same company, but competing divisions. And then the week I got promoted to go downtown to run the flagship Chandler store on State Street, he got promoted to go downtown and run the flagship Baker store on State Street. So we were like a block and a half away from each other and we did everything together and we became very good friends. Um, but he and his wife Kathy had become new Christians and they were part of a church plant out in the western suburbs. And uh, so he started um, asking me like every week, Angie, you might appreciate this. He started asking me like every week, will you go to church with us? Will you go to church with us? Will you go to church with us? I was not born and raised in the church at all, wanted nothing to do with it. I finally said, listen, Rick, if, we, if we're going to remain friends, we got to make a deal, okay? If I go to church with you and Kathy one time, do you promise you'll never ask me to go again? And he said, yes. And so I said, great, let's go this Sunday. So we went it was in a middle school somewhere. It was a church plant, you know, blah, 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 this, that, and the other thing. 
And I said, good, I fulfilled my duty and I got out of there. So that was my experience, but we remained friends. And then um, after five years in Chicago, on the same week, um, we got phone calls the same week to get promoted into middle management. I got called and, and was told I was gonna be a regional manager of 20 stores down in Southeast Texas, uh, which my office was in, uh, if you're familiar with Houston, uh, my office was in the Gulfgate shopping center on, on the south side of Houston, which is just a miserable, miserable place. Everything about Houston is miserable, but Gulfgate is like the worst part of Houston. And then I had stores down on the border, which was a lot of fun. Brownsville, McAllen, Harlingen, in Corpus Christi, in Victoria, all that. I was a regional manager there. And, and so I went into operations. He went into merchandising. He got promoted to be a, a buyer. And so he went to the home office in St. Louis. And this was before the internet and social media and all that, and so that was it. So this is 1985. Rick and I don't ever see each other, talk to each other again, even though we were very close friends. So fast forward to, what, seven years ago. We're in this church. We are in um, uh, the uh, Presbyterian, Memorial Presbyterian Church at 42nd Street in Thomas. We're renting space there. And uh, when, I, when I came on board with Redemption more than 10 years ago, uh, Neil Pitchell and Tyler Johnson handed me my, my uh, job description with all the bullet points. And at the very bottom was the last bullet point that said, oh, and find affordable property for a permanent home for your congregation in Arcadia. <laughs> so anyway, I spent a lot of time doing that. And and people would come to me all the time, and they'd have ideas about properties, and they'd say, I found a property, and this and that. Uh, if you know, we looked at the old roller skating rink that was turned into a telemarketing center over on Oak and about um, 45th Street, which is now being developed into condos or apartments or something. Anyway, so we looked at that. We also looked at that church up on the, uh, that's north of the 51, off of Shea, but it's northwest of the 51. It's now Hope uh, Community Church, um, led by the guy that used to uh, lead Harvest Bible uh, Chapel at Paradise Valley. Great guy. I can't remember his name right now. Mark, I think. But anyway, uh, they have the, well, we looked at that property, too. I remember Cody Kimmel, after the third time we looked at it, we took our architect out there, too. Um, Cody Kimmel finally said, uh, I, I said, you know, we can't, if we take this property, we can't call it Redemption Arcadia anymore because we're not in Arcadia. And, and Cody Kimmel said, yeah, we'll have to call it Redemption Boring Part of Phoenix. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so <laughs> at the next uh, elder meeting, Cody, Cody came in and said, listen, um, we're supposed to be in Arcadia, and we can't force this issue. And if God's got a place for us in Arcadia, he's going to make a way. And we were like, okay, that was it. So that was the end of that. So um, people would constantly come and say, hey, we've got a property for you. And, and then I'd go look at it. And you'd be surprised at what people would think that a church of six, 700 people could handle. I looked at 1,200 square foot homes on less than a tenth of an acre. People are like, it's available. You know, thank you. That's really quite helpful. Okay, so anyway. Uh, one Sunday, I'm standing out there on 42nd Street, which I used to do every Sunday, and um, a guy named uh, Cameron Quick walks up. Uh, young guy, I had just met him like a couple weeks previously at something at GCU, and he and his wife Ashley had just started coming to Redemption Arcadia. They had just moved here from somewhere else. And, um, and he said, hey, I, I think I've got a property for you. 
And he said, okay, uh, yeah, all right. So he, he said, he told me where it was. He says, you gotta go look at it and everything. And, and just like most of you, the first time I drove by this property trying to find it, I drove by it twice because I couldn't find it, okay? There's just not a lot of frontage. But when I finally figured out how to get in here, and you know this driveway here used to be half as wide as it is now, okay? Because there were, there were no fire codes or anything like that. The original property, Biltmore Bible Church, was, which was built here in 58 and 59, um, there, the, the plan for retention on a piece of property like this was just slope everything towards Camelback Road and let the water go out there. That was their retention plan back then, and that's what they did. Anyway, so um, out of Bethany Bible, um, they planted Biltmore Bible in 1958. They bought a house. There was a ranch-style house that used to sit right out here where the patio is, and that was their office, and then they built this sanctuary, and then they started to add on um, buildings to it, and um, it was old and dilapidated. Any, did anybody walk in, in through this property before we remodeled? Anybody in this room besides Stephanie and I walked through this property before we remodeled it? It was a horror scene. What We smelled things we've never smelled before. There were dead animals everywhere, and we were sure we were going to find some dead human bodies, but we never did. But it was, it was an absolute horror scene in here. Biltmore Bible had kind of gone out of uh, business in 2008. They were leasing it to a Radiant Life thing that just used this building right here, but it was, I don't know how they used it and how they had people in here. It was, it was really, really scary. Um, anyway, and, and that was up until about 2013 uh, that they were using it. Um, so I finally got in here and was able to kind of look around and saw that it had some potential. You know, I thought, well, the sanctuary is smaller than what we have, but, um, you know, what are you going to do? In Arcadia, it's hard to find 3.6 acres available. So here's the story on this property. When Biltmore Bible uh, disbanded, they hung on to it for a while and leased it to Radiant Life for a while, Radiant Life Church. And then they decided, well, we might as well just sell the property to the highest bidder. And so a high-end condo developer came in and put the property in escrow for $4.6 million. He was going to scrape it and then build high-end condos here. And that was quite a bit of money even six, seven, seven, eight years ago. That was still quite a bit of money um, for the property. And uh, they put it in escrow, and the board from Biltmore Bible went into the closing of escrow and had made a decision. They were not going to go through with this, the deal. They told the guy, sorry, we're not going to go through with it. We want the gospel to continue on this property. We're going to sell it to a church, but we know that means we're not going to get anywhere near $4.6 We're going to have to uh, deeply discount the property. We're not going to advertise it either. We're just going to put it in the water. This is how Cameron Quick found out about it because he knew a guy who knew a guy, and it was in the water. And so... Um, uh, uh, eventually, five churches and one seminary, a place called Phoenix Seminary, if anybody's ever heard of that. Anyway, uh, six of us got a, each got a 15-minute appointment with the board of um, Biltmore Bible, where we got to go in and, and say, here's why we should have the property. And so Neil Pitchell, Tyler Johnson, and I went in. I opened it up about two minutes. Uh, Tyler cast the vision for about... Uh, 12 minutes, and then the last minute was Neil Pitchell handing, handing them an offer letter for $1.2 million just for the property. 
and then we had to wait for two weeks. That was two of the longest weeks of my life. And uh, we got the call and we got the property for 1.2 million. Um, Ira, you might remember, maybe you guys remember too, um, we then did a capital campaign because it was gonna cost about 2.1 uh, million to completely repurpose the property and, and get it to what, the way it is today. We had to build an underground well, that was quite expensive, that was a big part of that. Anyway, we did the capital campaign the mortgage on the property is about 1,400,000 now, That's, and our payment is about 7,000 a month, which was less than we were paying in rent at Memorial, if you can imagine. And we had no parking at Re Memorial, if you remember that as well. Uh, so we're paying a mortgage payment right now that's less than the rent we paid at Memorial. Anyway, so we secured this property. So we started making the plans, but we were still, for a long time, we had to while DeBartolo was putting together the plans and then they had to re it took a year to fix the property once construction started. It was a long construction process um, after that. So we were still at uh, Memorial um, during that time. So all of this happened, we had secured the property and we were uh, working with the architect to get, in, uh, to get the plans ready to get in here, get the construction done and get in here. And one Sunday morning, I'm standing on I get uh, really emotional telling this story, so I'm sorry. Um, but I'm standing on 42nd Street, and uh, it, again, if you remember that property, if you were around for that property, we had 20 spaces in the parking lot. Everybody else parked in the, in the neighborhood and had to walk down uh, 42nd Street to get to the church. And uh, so I would stand out on 42nd Street and watch people walking uh, down the street and stuff. And, um, uh, I'm standing there and I look down, I look south on 42nd Street and way down, I see Cameron and Ashley walking and I see two people walking behind them and one of them, one of them is really tall and, and I look at him and I'm like, that dude looks so familiar to me and then I turned around and, and I said to myself, I said, everybody looks familiar to you, Frank, you think you know everybody, you don't, you don't know the guy, just forget about it, you know, so I turned around and was greeting other people then I turn back around and they're, they're much closer and now this guy's eyeballing me, okay? Again, behind um, Cameron and Ashley, he's eyeballing me and I'm eyeballing him back and I'm like, okay, I think I do know this guy, you know? And he just walks right up to me, never takes his eyes off my eyes, you know? He walks right up to me and he goes, do you know how tall I am? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I sure do, you're six feet four inches tall. It was Rick Carey, and, it was, and he was with Kathy, his wife, okay? And I'm like, what are you doing here? And he says, Ashley's our daughter, Cameron's wife. Ashley's our daughter. And then the four of them started to tell me this story. They were out to dinner. They were living in Fountain Hills for the last 10 years, okay? Rick and, and uh, Kathy. They were out to dinner with Cameron and Ashley, and they said, have you guys found a church yet? And they said, um, yeah, we have. And, and Ashley says to her dad, and I think you would like this guy. Her dad's from the Quad Cities, from Davenport, Iowa. You know, I love Iowa, I'm there every summer. And we both worked in Chicago together. She goes, um, and I think you'd really like the guy who leads this church. He, he, he talks about Iowa and Chicago all the time. I think you would love him. And he says, well, what's his name? And she says, Frank Switzer. And he says, what? <laughs> and, and he said, I, 
can you show me a picture of this guy? So she brought up a picture on her phone. And, and he says, this guy's a Christian? <laughs> he couldn't believe it. Can, can you believe this story? I mean, it's just unbelievable. And so Rick and Kathy got to see over the process of 35 years this idea of planting a seed and then somebody else watering the seed and then God causing the growth. And, and Rick and Kathy now, 35 years later, get to say, we're a part of the story of Redemption Arcadia getting their property. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. So that's a picture of what Paul is trying to paint here, that it actually truly happens. You know, I, it's just, it's an amazing story. I love that story. Anyway, so that's where we came from. And so now we look at, we start looking at uh, chapter four. My goal is to get through chapter four tonight. I don't know if we'll make it, but we'll try. So the first paragraph, verses one through five, Paul then says, this is how you should regard us. And by us, Paul's talking about him specifically as the letter writer and founder of the church in Corinth and as an apostle of Christ and what you might call his leadership team. So um, uh, Silas and Timothy and Luke and, and those guys. He says, this is how you should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, I do not pronounce judgment before the time, uh, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his condemn, uh, commendation, not condemnation, but commendation from God. That last verse, verse 5, is a little, it, there's an implied sort of, um, I don't know if the word threat is too harsh, but there's an implied threat there. He's saying, look, uh, God knows your heart. God knows what you're doing. And now we start to get really serious. Paul starts to get really serious about this. I mentioned last week that, you know, he's been tough with them. He's been tough on them because of the sin that they're experiencing in their leadership and in their church. Um, but he's been measured. He's going to get a little bit tougher now as he goes. But he starts in verses 1 and 2 with a subtle message of humility. He starts out by saying, he's, he's already let him know, I'm an apostle. But he's also now saying, I'm also a servant. And that word translated servant is the Greek word doulos, which also means slave. It's another word for uh, slave. Now, uh, we could go into this and we could have a long treatise about this. And actually, when we get to chapter 7, I'm going to speak more about this because um, it's more pertinent to the text there. But you have to understand that the um, economic system of slavery is, was way different in the first century Mediterranean world than it was in uh, uh, 19th century United States. It's two completely different types of things. Um, the, most of the slaves in the first century Mediterranean world had a say in what was going on. 
that th this was more contractual and transactional. It was, a, it was a way of employment. It was nothing like what happened in the 19th century in the United States, 18th and 19th century in the United States. So it was sort of an accepted economic system at that time where everybody was uh, involved with their eyes wide open and saying it's okay. So the Corinthians, however, even though that's true, they would look down uh, on slaves and common laborers because that's generally what these slaves were. They were common laborers who would say, look, I really need a job and I want to sell myself, my, my ability, my, uh, my body to you so that I can be paid and I can have some... Um, some sustenance, but they, the Corinthians were all pretty sophisticated and they would look down on, on those people who had to do that, who also would sometimes had to sell themselves in order to pay their debts. But Paul, knowing his relationship with Christ, the same relationship that you and I should understand and acknowledge, uh, lets him know that Jesus is his master, his king, and his ruler, and that's a completely different issue altogether. We are his, and that's a good thing. So Paul says later on, he's going to say, remember, Christ has bought you with a price, and the price was his own life. Okay? So Paul says, in effect, Paul says, look, I'm really nothing. But he's comparing himself to Christ, and he's saying that's what all Christians, all people who are in Christ should do, is say, I'm really nothing compared to Christ. That's the whole point. We love the social comparison process. We love comparing ourselves to others because there's ways that we can manipulate that to make ourselves into whoever we want to be compared to others through the social comparison process. But when we compare ourselves to Christ, we're kind of stuck because he's holy and we're not. Now we have a whole new issue there. So he says he's nothing. He's comparing himself to Christ. He has nothing compared to Christ's righteousness and no one any, no, neither does anybody else. So why would Paul say this to the Corinthians? This is now Paul starting to offer his defense to those in Corinth who are specifically critic, critical of him. So we talked a little bit last week about the fact that they were having these sort of preference and popularity context, contests about Apollos and Peter and Paul and Christ and who do you follow and all that stuff. But in the midst of that, what one of the reports that was getting back to Paul in the midst of that was that they were also criticizing Paul. And so now Paul starts to take that on and deal with that. And the way he decides to deal with it with those in Corinth is he says, go ahead. You've got criticism, lay it on me. I have Christ. So I actually have Teflon for your criticism. Your criticism isn't going to be able to get through to me. But also understand you have no right to judge anyone because only God can judge people. So he's playing this on two different fronts. I'm in Christ. So go ahead and criticize me, but but I'm doing what Christ called me to do, so I'm going to keep doing what I'm supposed to be doing. But you also have to remember that you don't have a right to judge anybody because only God can, uh, holds those keys. So Paul says, if, if anyone dares to judge or regard me, then this is how you should do it. You should understand that I'm a servant, that I'm a steward or a trustee. Okay. By the way, what is the operational definition of a trustee or a steward? I was... Um, for nine years, I was a trustee at Grand Canyon University. I was on the board of trustees at Grand Canyon University. This is before they got big. Um, and, and as a trustee, was our job as trustees to figure out how we could take advantage of the faculty, employees, and students. Was that our job? <laughs> okay. No. Our job was to serve the faculty, the students, 
and the employees. That was our job, and do what was best for them and look out for their best interests. So Paul's a servant. He also says, I'm a steward. He says, I've been entrusted with the mysteries of God, meaning the gospel. He says, I'm faithful. Judge me on my faith. And And then he says, and I'm also impervious to the judgments of humans because only God judges me. Only God judges me. And that works out well for Paul, and it works out well for us. And the reason is because when the Lord judges Paul, he sees Jesus because Paul is in Christ. If you are in Christ, when God the Father looks at you, he sees Jesus. He sees his righteousness, his holiness. There's this tension about sanctification. There is a sense in which we are already sanctified, Because when God looks at us and we're in Christ, we're holy. But there's a sense in which we're also still living in this temporal world where Christ hasn't returned yet. And so we're also in the process of being sanctified and learning and growing in Christ. But not only that, God will judge his work in the gospel as well. And Paul knows that he's honored his call uh, that God has given him. And he's doing everything that God has asked. But then, especially in verse 5... This paragraph also reveals in a subtle way that Paul isn't so sure that the same can be said at this point for the leaders at the Corinthian church who are apparently concerning themselves with deciding which apostle is best and criticizing Paul's ministry in the process. So Paul tells the Corinthians that they are dark and hidden in their thinking, in their speculation, in their criticisms, and in their popularity contests. And and God's going to reveal that. God's going to reveal that to them. So... In a sense, watch out. Look at verses 6 and 7. So he says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. So just a word about that. Don't add to the gospel. Don't add to God's word. Don't, Don't think that there's more to this than what God has revealed to us and told us. That none of you may be puffed up in favor of uh, of one against another. The minute you start adding to the gospel, it, all it does is uh, uh, engender pride and despair. Pride for those who believe that they're living up to that addition to the gospel and despair for those who can't. That's just what happens. And neither pride nor despair is anything that God wants for us. And if you're in Christ, you're not supposed to have either one of those things. You neither despair nor are you lording anything over anybody else. Verse 7, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? So, uh, what is it that Paul has applied to himself and and Apollos? Seems important that he's talking about this. What what are these things? Well, you look back to the preceding paragraph and you see that uh, he's applied the fact that he's a faithful servant, that he is faithful, that he pursues humility and smallness, that he's not, Paul is not in this for his own glory and that he reserves judgment for God. And he says this because he answers why he says this at the end of verse 6. Unlike the Corinthians, Paul is not puffed up with pride. This entire treatise, so far from the very beginning of chapter 1, has been incited by the Corinthians' wrong, self-serving, and prideful desires. So Paul is showing that the antidote to that is to be a servant, to be faithful, to be humble, and to let God be God. And he says, that's what is written. Read your scriptures. That's what's written. 
What is written is about the glory of God. It's not about the glory of man. And you Corinthians are really all about the glory of man. And so let me say that here in the, in the um, 50s AD, middle 50s, which is when this was written, what is, um, this, is just mere, this is merely 20 years after the cross and resurrection. Understand, we already have a consumer church. We already have a consumer church. You thought the consumer church was just a 21st century uh, invention. Okay? There was a consumer church in the 50s AD, and it was the church at Corinth. So what's a consumer church? By the way, look around in America. Most churches are consumer churches. And here's what they look like. People who come to church expect to always get what they want no matter what. It's like we're Nordstrom's. Okay? Seriously. And if they don't get what they want, they're going to look for Mr. Nordstrom. And I'm Mr. Nordstrom. Okay? I didn't like the music today. Well, God liked it, and that's who we were doing it for. <laughs> Sorry. You know? The people who come to consumer churches want to be entertained more than instructed. People who come uh, to consumer churches believe that uh, others are there to serve them, but they're never expected to serve others. You've heard of the 80-20 rule, right? 20% of the people do 80% of the work. Uh, there's a guy named Gordon Alport, who's a Harvard um, scholar. He actually said, I'd like to test that and see if that's true. And so he did like this two-year research project where he w went in and looked at different churches, and he said, the 80-20 rule isn't true. It's more like 90-10. <laughs> Interesting. Um, consumer church people tend to be judgmental and critical. Um, they... they uh, they come with a self-esteem that tells them that they're really not sinful or immoral or unethical. Um, they come and they, and they believe that their experience is more important and has more veracity than the guidance and direction of the Holy Spirit or of scriptures. And the people who come believe in self-exaltation and self-glory and are not so interested in the ex exaltation and glory of God. And they believe that their wisdom is much keener than God's. Uh, C.S. Lewis used to describe this as chronological snobbery. I'm alive today. Uh, you know, I'm alive in the 21st century. Paul was alive in the first century. Just by that virtue that I'm alive today and Paul was alive then, that makes me smarter than Paul. Okay, that's kind of how that thinking goes. Read uh, C.S. Lewis in chronological snobbery. It's an interesting, uh, really interesting uh, study. And this is what's happening in the Corinthian church. And really, considering all of this, Paul is still fairly measured in his response and his rebuke to the church at, at Corinth. And then in verse 7, in other words, why do you think that everything that good happens in the church is your doing and everything that bad happens in the church is somebody else's doing? Apparently, Paul is saying to them, there's no room for God's sovereignty and your sin. So everything good is about you. Everything bad is somebody else. No room for God's sovereignty. No room for your sin. And those are the actual realities. So now at this point, you might be thinking, hmm, Paul's kind of negative. This is kind of rough. Well, the Corinthians are so far off track. They're listening to so much false and unhelpful teaching, most of it propagated by themselves, that Paul needs to be stern. And again, I would argue that given the circumstances, Paul is actually being measured and tactful. But he's going to get a little bit more edgy as we go on. Look at verses 8 through 13. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. <clears throat> and what that you did reign, so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles... 
Uh, last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we are in dis disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still, like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Um, that word refuse reminds me, uh, years ago, uh, we had, a, we had a, uh, a praise song that the one of the lines in there was, uh, God is our refuge. And the person who prepared the slides misspelled refuge and spelled it refuse. So we were singing God is our refuse. <laughs> that was a problem. Anyway, um, so now you see in this paragraph the tenor and the mood of Paul changes a bit. Remember, up until now I've argued that Paul has been measured and kind of restrained considering how off track uh, the Corinthians are, but now he's less measured and less restrained. And he begins to build to something. And he continues to build through the next paragraph, the last paragraph of chapter 4 as well, but he's building to something really big at the beginning of chapter 5. Some of you know what it is. We'll get there next week. But he's been dealing, so far he's been dealing with the factions and the gospels at the church, which is bad enough. And now he takes on what the Corinthians have said about their leaders and spiritual progenitors, not good stuff, the people who planted the ch church. And he takes on their insidious pride. And now he does so with sarcasm. This chap, this paragraph, verses 8 through 13, is Paul exercising his spiritual gift of sarcasm. I bet you didn't know that was a spiritual gift, but it is. Okay? That's why I feel like I'm maybe a little bit biblical, all right? <laughs> he does it with sarcasm, he does it with irony, and he does it with a sharp rebuke. But again, even in this paragraph, like I said, he's building to something bigger. So the irony here, and Paul uses sarcasm to point it out, the irony is that the Corinthians church got started by Paul and his team's hard, sacrificial labor of love, but those he blessed with the gospel are now puffed up in themselves and believe that they're better uh, than those who gave them the gift of Christ in the first place. And so Paul hits them with sarcasm. You're rich. You're kings. Without us. You're rich. You're fine. You're the bee's knees. That's kind of a modern interpretation. Semi-modern interpretation. Fifties, uh, yeah, a different fifties, a nineteen fifties <laughs> interpretation. He's and you did it without us. Oh, that we could be with. He says, "Oh, that we could be with you, so that we could be so exalted." I mean, this is just really serious sarcasm here. And then Paul goes so far as to say that they, the apostles and the founders of church at Corinth are perceived as and treated by the Corinthians as prisoners and slaves while the Corinthians glorify themselves. And then you notice in verses 10 through 13, it is a reiteration of Paul's argument about wisdom and foolishness from chapter 1, verses 18 through 30. Only now it is the Corinthian Christians who are the ones that are buying into worldly foolishness. And admittedly, Paul's getting pretty worked up here. I've never been worked up before, but Paul gets worked up, and I think rightfully so, for what he's building to is pretty ghastly. But we have one more paragraph before we get there. And by the way, don't think that these same issues can't happen in the 21st century here in America. In fact, I would argue that more churches 
uh, in the 21st century are like the Corinthian church than they are like the Ephesian or the Philippian church. Paul loved those churches, if you remember. And, and also remember, uh, Revelation, the book of Revelation starts with Jesus dictating seven letters to seven different churches to John as he writes Revelation. And six of those churches receive pretty harsh, corrective, uh, rebuking words from Jesus in those uh, letters. But also remember that Jesus and Paul speak these words because they love their disciples and they love us. They're doing this out of love. So verses 14 through 21. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. See that? He's not doing this to shame them, to make them feel guilty. He's doing it because he loves them. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ. I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? And then he goes into the big problem in chapter 5, which I know you're dying to get to, but we're not going to get to. So, look at verse 14. He's not writing to shame them. He's writing because he loves them. Uh, and this is, it, it, there's part of me is a little bit frustrated. I have a frustration with, um, you know, I'm a word nerd. I love rhetoric and I study language and all that stuff. Um, we live in a culture where people uh, make statements that are observations and people make statements that are judgments or value statements. And there's a difference between an observation and a value statement. Can we agree on that? Okay. Uh, the problem is we live in a culture now where all observations are being taken as judgments and value statements. So my, my favorite example of this, and it won't resonate with most of you, but it's my favorite, so you have to sit here and listen to it, is you're, you're watching a football game, a, an NFL football game, and there's a 6-foot-3-inch, 260-pound linebacker who um, has an opportunity to tackle a running back in the backfield for a loss. And he, and he misses the, t he, he wraps the guy up, but he doesn't bring him down. The guy squirms away and picks up 15 yards. And the commentator says, if he had wrapped him up a different way, if he had wrapped him up the way he was taught, he would have thrown him for a loss instead of letting him get a, a big gain. Okay. That's just an observation. He's not making a value. He's just saying he didn't wrap him up. That's an observation. But now you got a six foot three inch, 260 pound guy sitting on the bench boo-hooing because his little self-esteem has been hurt and he's had a microaggression occurred against him, okay? That's literally the culture that we live in today. You have to be careful of observations because people are taking it that way. Ah, it's a microaggression. You can't, oh, I won't even get into it. I have to be really careful about questions I ask in my classrooms at PVCC, really careful. Because there are certain questions that are seen now as microaggressions. Here, here's one. Where are you from? Microaggression. Okay. Can you help me um, pronounce your last name? Microaggression. Isn't that amazing? This stuff is real. Okay. This is the culture we're living in right now. Okay. And Paul is dealing with some of this stuff with these, here you go, snowflakes in Corinth. <laughs> All right. Got a bunch of snowflakes there. So, 
Remember Proverbs 26.7, the wounds of a friend are faithful and can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Your enemy will multiply flattery and compliments, okay? Problem with our world today is that you're not a friend if you speak truth in love, you are an enemy. But apparently, you're a friend if you uh, encourage somebody while they're destroying their life and the life of other people. That's the way it is right now. So you got to be really careful. And then verse 15, this happens all the time today. The wise and discerning counsel of Paul has been dismissed for the shallow, vapid, and doppelganger counsel of someone who would never think of disagreeing with you. And then you tell everyone, but I am submitting myself to counsel. Okay? So y'all know what a doppelganger is, right? Right. We all supposedly have a doppelganger. Somebody who looks, somebody in the world who looks exactly like us, okay? Some people have told me that Tom Hanks is my <laughs> doppelganger. I know, it's, it's kind of annoying. Anyway, for Tom. So, um, by the way, this morning, uh, Stephanie and I were out at Gilbert and uh, walked up to a table with some people we knew. And I, I forget her name. I don't know her name, but she said, were you there? Oh, you weren't there. Yeah, I, I, I know her, but I don't know her name. Anyway, she said, oh my gosh, she said, um, I met your doppelganger voice. Apparently, there's somebody at Gilbert that has my voice. She says every time she hears him, like around a corner or in a room, she thinks I'm at Gilbert, okay? And then, she, oh, it's this other guy. Anyway, um, in the 1990s, now, Barry, you might remember Warren Bennis uh-huh. from the 1990s, okay? Leadership. Ira, you too? Yeah. He, was, he was the 1990s... Uh, Simon Sinek, okay? He was the leadership guru of the 1990s, writing all these leadership books. In 1993 or 94, he wrote a fantastic leadership book, and there was a whole chapter in there about the doppelganger effect. And he wasn't talking about people who look like you. He was talking about the kind of leadership mistake where people surround, a leader will surround themselves with only people who will tell them what they want to hear and agree with them all the time. He says that's a big leadership mistake and it happens more often than, uh, than you think, okay? Um, we had a conversation in the class uh, that I teach at GCU today about um, making sure that when you put together a board of elders that it's not just a group of people who are always going to pat you on the back and agree with you. You have to have at least one prophetic voice in the group of elders, that person who's going to be kind of annoying and that you don't really want to spend time with, but who is looking out for the best interests of the church at all times. Okay, and, and we have that here. And, and it can get tense sometimes, but that's a good tension. You know, things don't work without tension. Your car doesn't work without tension. You realize that, don't you? You gotta have some tension. You gotta have people who are gifted in different ways looking out for the church, and that prophetic voice is really important. Don't surround yourself with just a bunch of um, doppelgangers. And then finally, and I'll end with this, we're gonna have to kind of stop in the middle of this paragraph. Um, Paul also says, I want you to think of me as your father, a father who in love encourages, rebukes, corrects, and trains. The problem is the Corinthians prefer sages and affirmation therapists. Now, you know what an affirmation therapist is, right? Do you? An affirmation therapist is a uh, counselor, a psychologist, or a psychiatrist who only agrees with your view of how things are happening to you and never challenges you. They just affirm you. And you get to pay $175 an hour 
to have some professional person just say, yep, you're right, mm-hmm, yeah, you're right, yeah, yeah, everybody else is awful, and you're right, mm-hmm, yeah, uh-huh, yeah, uh-huh, oh, yeah, and never challenge you, okay? Because, you know, if you, if you challenge them, then you're going to lose the 175 bucks an hour. I mean, that's just kind of the way it's going right now. There's a lot of affirmation therapists out there. Nothing new. The Corinthians loved affirmation therapists and sages that agreed um, with them. And the irony here, of course, is that Caesar, all of the Caesars, the Roman Caesars, they all thought of themselves as the father of the people. I mean, even um, uh, the movie Gladiator even got that right when Commodus was talking about how he was the father of the people and they depended on him and all of that. And so Paul is telling them the truth. You need a true father and I'm willing to be that for you, but a true father is going to Um, uh, rebuke and correct and instruct and encourage all of those things okay so we'll stop there we'll pick up at verse 16 and then we'll get into the exciting stuff in uh, chapter 5 next week all right let me pray for us Uh, father god thank you for your word and its truth and uh, thank you for how clearly applicable what's going on in corinth is is also true of us today because we've never really changed in our nature. And so that's why we need you. And so thank you for the gospel. Thank you for your son and what he's done for us. And thank you for the filling of the Holy Spirit. May we have the courage to live by and in the spirit. We ask that in Jesus' name, amen. We'll see you Sunday.